Today's scripture reading is from Genesis chapter 19, verse 1 to verse 22. Genesis 19, verse 1 to 22. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 13. This is one of the more well-known stories in Genesis, but it is quite dramatic and interesting. Uh, if you are able, please stand and read God's holy word together. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people of the last men surrounding the house, and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them. Lao went out to the man at the entrance, shut, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they say, Stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we must deal worth with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against, against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, son-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy the place, because the outcry against its people has been great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So La went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seems to his son-in-law to be jesting. And morning dawn, the angel urged La, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the man seized him and his wife and his two daughters by, hand, by the hand. The Lord be merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought him out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. And you have shown him great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is the little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, 
that I will not overthrow the city to which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zor. This is the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Let's pray once more together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning that we're able to gather together to worship you. We pray now as we sit under the preaching of your word, as it says, when your word goes out, that it does not return void, but it accomplishes that which you purpose. And so we ask that your spirit would accomplish that work today. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, although someone understands the gospel, it doesn't mean that they will automatically believe. I remember catching up with a friend, a friend from high school at a local Starbucks while we were still in college, and we were catching up about our college experiences. She shared with me that she had started attending church and going to fellowship, and this comment piqued my interest, and so I asked her what she thought about church. And so this prompted to share her story, and this is a story that I've shared often uh, with some of you. She shared that she had been attending a fellowship gathering, and she was hearing her friend's testimony. And this friend's testimony moved her to tears, and she couldn't bear listening to all of it. So she left the sharing early, and then she wandered to her university's chapel. And as she sat in the pew, she conversed with the Lord, saying, God, if you exist, give me a sign. And for her, a sign was a bright white light. And so then after she gathered her thoughts in the chapel, she left and she started walking back to her apartment, which was about a 15-minute walk away. And she looks up into the evening sky and she sees a shooting star, white as light. And so I'm thinking in my mind, wow, I mean, if she's looking for a sign, she got it. And so I asked, so what did you do afterwards? And then she shared, she didn't return to church. She didn't go back to fellowship. And perplexed, I asked her, well, why not? And she said, it's because if I were to become a Christian, if I were to become a follower of Christ, that means I have to acknowledge that I'm a sinner and I need God's help. And I'm not ready to acknowledge that. So my friend understood the gospel. She understood it, but she refused to believe in it. Now, many of us have probably encountered people who are like my friend. They understand the gospel, but they refuse to believe in it. I mean, they may give different reasons for why they don't want to believe. Uh, some refuse to believe because they may see hypocrisy in the church. The church preaches love your neighbor, but they see all the unloving things that Christians do. Some refuse to believe in the gospel because they don't want to acknowledge, like my friend, that they're sinners. I mean, compared to rapists, murderers, thieves, I'm a pretty good person. I mean, some refuse to believe in the gospel because they simply don't want to live under God's rule. To believe in the gospel, to become a follower of Christ, might mean contributing their personal checking account funds to the kingdom of God. No thanks. People often may understand the gospel, but they may refuse to believe in it for a variety of reasons. So then what do we do? 
what do we do as Christians when we hear people refuse to believe in the gospel? What kind of action do we take when a person understands the gospel and then says, no thanks? What should our response be when people reject the gospel? Now, to answer this question, we'll turn to the passage that John Shea just read to us. And if you haven't turned there already, please open up your Bible to Genesis chapter 18. Now, I know you may be thinking John just read from Genesis 19. But this morning's sermon covers actually a much larger swath of text. It covers some material before Genesis 19, and then also some material afterwards, after what John just read. Now, as you know, this summer, we're going through a series on the life of Abraham. Now, in the passages that we covered so far, we studied passages that focus on God's relationship with Abraham. But in this section, we're beginning a section where we're going to focus on God's relationship or God's relationship through Abraham to the nations. How does Abraham relate to the neighboring nations around him? Now, to answer that question, what do we do when people refuse to believe in the gospel? We have to do three things. First, we have to think about a problem that affects everyone. There, there is a dilemma that we all face. There is a quandary, a plight. And then we're going to look at a solution. What is the way out? What is the key to solving this issue, this problem? What is the answer to this quandary? And lastly, we'll look at an application. What is the solution to this problem applied? What do we do? How do we apply this solution in our lives? So let's first look at the problem, the issue. The text shows us that there is an issue with people. No one is righteous, not even one. We have a problem. We fail to live according to the righteous standard of God. In fact, we don't even try. We have an inherited corruption that prevents us from acting and thinking righteously. And we all struggle with this, from the youngest to the oldest. No matter the life stage, no matter the background, we all struggle. No one is righteous, not even one. Now, where do we see this in the text? Well, we see this problem manifested in the city of Sodom. Not one Sodomite was righteous. Everyone acted wickedly. They all lived immoral lives. So let's talk about Sodom a little bit so that you can understand why this statement is true. Now, John read to you Genesis chapter 19, but even before the two angels visit Sodom, the sinful behavior of Sodom had already reached the ears of God. God had already received reports of their morally corrupt behavior. So if you can turn your attention to Genesis chapter 18, which you should be turned to, we're going to look at verse 20. It says this, Then the Lord said, this is verse 20, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now, I want us to focus on a word that's repeated twice in these two verses. It is the word outcry. Why is that important? Now, the first time we hear about an outcry is when Cain murders Abel. That the blood of Abel cries out for justice. There is an outcry, and God hears that cry for justice. And he also hears the cry for justice against 
Sodom and Gomorrah. Its innocent victims cry out for justice. Now, note the adjective that describes the outcry. It says, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 20 is great. Now, this language resembles another time when God carried out judgment on the earth. It was before the flood. That the Lord saw the wickedness of man, and it was great, and this causes God to send the flood, and the sinful behavior of these cities had reached pre-flood proportions of wickedness. Now, also note the wording in verse 21. I will go down to see whether they have done all together according to the outcry that has come to me. I will go down to see. Now, if you've been here in Genesis, you'll notice that sounds really familiar. And it should. Because when else did God go down to examine the sinful activity of man? It was at the Tower of Babel. Now, Babylon serves as a metaphor for a wicked city, and the use of the similar language equates the two, that Babel and Sodom are equally, equally wicked, that the sinful activity at Sodom was on par with the sinful activity at Babel. Well, then the question begs, or we beg to ask the question, what sinful behavior did the Sodomites engage in? What sinful behavior did the Sodomites participate in? Now, there are two sinful activities that we see specifically in the text. First, we see a failure to provide hospitality. Now, just to clarify, the men of Sodom didn't know that the two men who entered into Sodom were actually angels. The only reason why we do is because the author tells us. Now, per ancient Near East custom, people extended hospitality to guests and visitors. So let's read again what happens when the two guests enter into the city. It's in chapter 19, and we have in verse 1, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go your way. And of course, the conversation continues. Now, let's think about the location. The angels enter by the city gate. This is where all the leaders gather together to, to decide civil matters. They have discussions. This is where ideas would be exchanged. Now, it's hard to exchange ideas with just one person. So Lot was probably with other people at the gate. And there were probably other people there discussing matters. Now, think also about the time. <clears throat> The angels visit in the evening. This means that they can travel no further, and they need to turn aside to rest. They need a place for shelter. Now, the text shows us that only one person extends hospitality to these visitors. It was Lot. Now, you might say, well, hang on a second. You're saying that the Sodomites didn't extend hospitality, but isn't Lot a Sodomite? But if you recall, Lot was a sojourner in Sodom. He was an alien. He's the nephew of Abraham. And we'll talk about Lot a little bit later in the message. But the important thing to get here, especially in these opening verses of verse nine, or chapter 19, is that the Sodomites fail to extend hospitality. Now you might think, well, is hospitality a punish inhospitality a punishable offense? An inhospitable environment oftentimes is a symptom of a deeper issue. 
Now, let me give you an example. This is an anecdotal example, so bear with me. So recently, I was in Southern California taking doctoral classes, and my classmates and I decided to go to Japantown for some ramen. Now, for those of you who lived or know of LA, Japantown is near another part of town called Skid Row. And all the LA natives, when they heard that we were going to Japantown, said, be very, very careful, because there is a part next to Jan a Japantown, Skid Row, that is inhospitable. It's a place marked by lawlessness and danger. And people warned us to avoid the area. Now, again, I'm not from Southern California. Remember, I'm from Northern California. So this is what I heard from other people. And people warned us to avoid the area because it was inhospitable, but be it was inhospitable because there were some deeper-rooted issues, injustice, lawlessness, that created an inhospitable atmosphere. So then we have to ask, well, what is the deeper issue? Now, the deeper issue that is pointed out here is sexual immorality that Sodom practiced sexually immoral behavior. Now, as you read the or heard the passage read to you earlier, Lot hosted these two angelic visitors. Now, before these two visitors retire for the evening, a mob assembles at Lot's doorsteps. Let's look at verse 4. Chapter 19, verse 4. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. So note the contrast of the two words, young and old. You see that all the men came out to Lot's house. This means that everyone came. There was not one that was excluded. Now what do they come to do? Let's look at verse 5. It says this, And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Again, the Sodomites thought they were men. It says, bring them out to us that we may know them. Now, cursory reading, you may think, well, what's the big deal? The men of Sodom, they wanted to get to know Lot's visitors. Maybe they wanted to get to know their names. Well, where are they from? Where are they going? But that's not the, what the word know implies. Because if you've read in the book of Genesis, if you've read any of Genesis, you'll know that the word know is used to describe sexual intercourse. Now, if you recall, in the beginning of the book of Genesis, Adam knew Eve, and they conceived a son named Cain. And whenever the object of the verb know is a person, it has sexual connotations. And when one reads later about Lot's daughters who have not known a man, it doesn't make sense because... Lot is a man. His daughters would have known a man if the word know is just to get to know a person. So the idea even there is this idea that Lot's daughters were virgins because they had not had sex with any man. Now, the men of Sodom intend to sexually abuse and rape these two male visitors. And God condemns such sexually immoral behavior because such Sexually immoral behavior usurps, undermines, overthrows God's design for sex. Now, Moses highlights the sins of inhospitality, sexual morality in Sodom in this particular account. And we discover in other books within the Old Testament that Sodom also had other sin issues. Gluttony, injustice, pride. And all these sins caused God to bring forth judgment on this city. 
Now let's talk about the form of judgment. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but the judgment actually resembles the flood. Now you may be wondering, well, what do you mean? Well, God couldn't flood the city with water because if you remember, God promised not to send judgment in the form of water again. But if you look at chapter 19, verse 24, let's read it together. It sounds very similar. Chapter 19, verse 24. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. So you think about the times that God has sent rain from heaven in the book of Genesis. The first time rain comes, it brings life. The second time the rain comes, it destroys everything. And this third time in Sodom and Gomorrah, in this story, destroys everything again. That the unrighteousness of Sodom equaled that during the time of Noah. And this prompted God to bring cataclysmic judgment upon the earth once more. Now, Sodom shows us that human beings have a problem. We have an issue. No one is righteous, not even one. Now, this problem is not just limited to Sodom. It's not just a dilemma for people long ago. This is a problem that faces us today, too. Not even one of us are righteous. Now, let's think about this idea of righteousness. Many of us would identify a righteous person as doing good things. But to be righteous according to the Bible means living according to God's ways. That righteous people sync up their lives to God's standards. Now, somebody might argue, well, this isn't quite fair. I mean, some people don't know what God's standards are. Well, if you recall, the Bible talks about how human beings are made in the image of God. That means all of us have a sense of how God wishes for us to live. I mean, this, me this explains why people believe that things like murder are wrong. It's not for right for someone to take another person's life. And this is a result of something called common grace. But none of us choose to live according to God's standards all the time. One might say that we live according to God's standards when it suits us. We will tell the truth as long as it benefits me. And when lying proves beneficial, then I'll twist the truth. We prefer to live according to our own way rather than God's way. Now you might say, oh, but I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I am righteous before God. And that's true. You are positionally righteous before the Lord. But you have to admit that even as Christians, we still struggle with sinful behavior. That even if we desire to live God's way, we don't always do it so consistently. That as believers, we feel the tension of doing what is right in our eyes versus what is right in God's eyes. And as I thought about this tension, I think about how in my ideal world, ideal world, remember, sinner, wicked person. In my ideal world, I wish there was some way that I could live according to the ways of the world and also according to the ways of God. I mean, if you imagine the way of the world as one circle and the ways of God as another circle, it'd be great if the two overlapped. It'd be great if they were the same, that you can live in both worlds. But the reality is, you can only choose to live according to one circle. 
You either live according to the ways of the world, or you live according to the ways of God. You cannot live in both. And that's why we struggle with living righteously. Now you may think, well, that, well, that's kind of a downer. Why did I come here on Sunday morning? Okay. So the issue is now the solution. What actually helps us resolve this problem of everyone being unrighteous? Is that God allows a righteous person to intercede for the unrighteous. That God permits someone to serve as a mediator for the unrighteous. He invites someone to make a case for him to show mercy. He grants permission for a person to stand in the gap. That God allows a righteous person to intercede for the unrighteous. Now, who is this mediator? Who is this person that stands in the gap? Well, in this story, it's the person, Abraham. That God allows Abraham to intercede for the sodomites. Well, hang on a second. I thought you said that all people were unrighteous. And I've been here for the Genesis sermons. I mean, Abraham doesn't live a very righteous life. I mean, remember what he did to his wife? And I say, true. But if you remember what happened in our previous narrative, Abraham believed God's promises and it was counted to him as righteousness. That God accounted to Abraham righteousness and this qualifies him to serve as an intercessor. Now, an intercessor within the Old Testament is called a prophet. Abraham acts as a proto-prophet, the first of his kind, by interceding for the nations. Now, what makes Abraham a prophet? A prophet has three qualifications. First, he knows the plans of God. Second, God expects a prophet to teach his ways to his people. And then thirdly, the prophet intercedes. And we'll see that Abraham exemplifies all three qualities. First, we see that God reveals his plan to judge Sodom and Gomorrah or to Abraham. Look at chapter 18, verse 17. Chapter 18, verse 17. It says this, The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? So the question is worded in such a way that the expected answer is no. God will not hide his plans. And this fulfills the first qualification of a prophet. Abraham knows the plans of God. But Abraham also fulfills the second requirement, that God expects Abraham to teach Israel righteousness and justice. Look at verse 18. Again, it says, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Now, many people think that the task of a prophet is prediction, telling the future. But actually, the primary task of a prophet is to call the people of God back to obedience. And here in the text, we see that God expects Abraham to be an instructor of God's ways, that Israel would learn how to follow God. And so this means Abraham fulfills the second qualification, that God expects Abraham to teach his people God's ways. Now let's talk about the third qualification. We have intercession. And we see that Abraham intercedes for Sodom. Why? 
is because Abraham knows that God is just. Would God wipe out a city even if there are righteous people within it? That doesn't seem right. And so Abraham's understanding of God's justice shapes his intercession. I mean, it's God's just character that causes Abraham to pray, to intercede. Now look at verse 25. It says this, Far be it from you, this is Abraham speaking, to do such a thing to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Now, let's talk about the intercession a little bit. And I'll summarize this exchange between God and Abraham. Abraham first asks, God, would you spare the city if there are 50 righteous people in it? And God replies, yes. And Abraham continues to negotiate with God. He reduces the number from 50 to 45 to 30 to 20 to 10, and then he stops. Well, why does Abraham stop at 10? Well, according to some literature, a group of 10 people within a city would actually come together regularly to pray. Surely there would be 10 people in Sodom praying for the welfare of the city. And the conclusion of this negotiation, this intercession, is this, that God knew, or Abraham knew, that God would ultimately be just, that God will be fair, that his judgment will not be unjust, but it will be just. Now, you may be thinking, well, Abraham isn't our intercessor, and that's true. It's because Abraham foreshadows a future intercessor, his descendants, and his name is Jesus that God allows Jesus to intercede for us. Now, what qualifies Jesus to serve as a prophet? I mean, after all, he is the ultimate prophet. Well, first, Jesus knows the plans of God. He knows God's plan to save both Jew and Gentiles. This fulfills the first requirement, knowing the plans of God. There's a second requirement, that a prophet teaches the way of God to the people. And Jesus teaches his followers how to pursue righteousness and justice through the Spirit. I mean, while Jesus was on the earth, he taught people what it looked like to live as citizens to God's kingdom. And an example of that teaching would be the Sermon on the Mount. And as Jesus ascends into heaven, he sends the Holy Spirit to his believers to remind them of his teachings. Now, Remember how I said before that we all struggle to live righteously, even as believers? That we all wrestle with living according to God's ways? But we as believers have an advantage in this particular struggle, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit creates within us an awareness of this tension of living according to God's way versus our way. And believers, by the power of the Holy Spirit, gain a sensitivity, a tingly spider sense in some sense, to when they feel prone to sin. Now, at that moment when a believer has a choice to give in to an angry outburst, at that moment when a believer has a choice to give in to their sexual temptation, at that moment when a believer has a choice to slander someone, the Holy Spirit is there warning them. And that the Holy Spirit not only warns them, but empowers them to live according to God's way if they choose that he gives the believer an ability to refrain from anger, he enables the believer to refrain from sexual sin, and he causes them to refrain from slander, that the Holy Spirit is available to all who have placed their faith in Christ to live righteously. 
Now, lastly, we talked about the qualifications. We talked about Jesus knowing the plan of God, Jesus teaching people to live righteously, and lastly, Jesus intercedes on our behalf. <clears throat> I mean, after all, Jesus knows God's justice best. And his understanding of God's justice shapes his intercession. Well, what do I mean by that? It means that Jesus intercedes for his followers based upon his work on the cross. That Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. So imagine a courtroom scene. God sits as the judge. You have Satan sitting where the prosecutor might be, and you have Jesus sitting where the defense attorney is. <clears throat> and every time a Christian sins, Satan lives up to his name, accuser. He condemns the believer. He explains why God should pour out his wrath on this person. And then he makes his case, and he sits down. And then Jesus stands up and says, yes, that's true. But my death paid for that sin. And the judge slams the gavel. Case closed. Justice was done at Calvary. <coughs> but this intercession isn't available for everyone. Jesus intercedes for his followers. He advocates for those who profess faith in Christ. This explains Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. And you don't need to turn there. I'll read them to you. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And here's the key verse. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of our God. Thank God that we have Christ as our intercessor. And for those of you who do not know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, there's a choice before you. Do you wish for Jesus to intercede for you? Do you wish for his death to pay for the penalty of your sins? Let's move to the last point, application. What are we supposed to do in light of all this? We need to pray for unbelievers that you know, because you never know whom God will save. Believers should pray that God would show mercy to the lost. They should intercede for the souls of their unbelieving friends, family, neighbors, because we never know who God will rescue. But we pray anyways. Pray for unbelievers you know, because you never know whom God will save. Now, I've said already that Abraham prayed for Sodom so that God might spare the city on behalf of righteous people within the city. But God destroys all the inhabitants of the city. But he does save one person. In fact, his family. And we see this in the text, <clears throat> that God saves Lot because of Abraham's prayer. Now, before we go into that verse that says that, let's think about Lot's life a little bit. <clears throat> now, when we read this narrative, one might think that, well, you know, Lot behaves pretty righteous, more righteously than Sodomites. I mean, first, he sends hospitality to his angelic guests, as I've already read before. 
He opens up his home. They're able to stay there. And we also see that Lot confronts the wicked behavior of Sodom. Uh, look at verse 6 in chapter 19. It says this, Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Now, all the other men participated in this wicked behavior, but God, or Lot, calls it out. This is righteous. Now, before we think that Lot is 100% righteous, there's plenty in the text that shows us that Lot has a lot more unrighteousness in him as well. That the influence of Sodom on Lot's family is quite strong. So let me share with you some examples. If you recall, earlier in the book of Genesis, Lot chooses to go to Sodom and Gomorrah over remaining with his uncle Abraham. He chooses the riches of the Jordan Valley rather than the promises of God. If you recall earlier, he sits at the gate of Sodom. He serves on the leadership of Sodom. But that leadership probably influenced him in his twisted sense of way. And remember also in this story where Lot, when faced with protecting his guests versus protecting his daughters, he's like, have my daughters, right? That he offers up his daughters to protect his guests so that this mob could sexually abuse and rape them. And if you recall, Lot would have stayed in Sodom unless the angels intervened. Look at verse 16 of chapter 19. But he lingered, so the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. Even though Lot knew that God was going to overthrow the city, he wanted to stay. And if you also look, Lot's wife turned into salt because she looked back to Sodom. Look at verse 26 of chapter 19. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Instead of identifying herself with God's people, she preferred to be identified with Sodom. And she shared the same fate. And also, turn your attention to Lot's daughters. If you look from verse 30 to verse 38, we have an instance of incest. Look at verse 31. It says, And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. That the daughters would get their dad drunk to produce heirs, Moab and Ammon. They, and they would be future adversaries of Israel. Now, one must rub their chin and wonder, so why did God save Lot again? Ultimately, it's because of Abraham's prayer, that despite Lot's family's immoral behavior, God saves him by his grace because of Abraham's intercession. Look at verse 29. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Notice in verse 29, God remembered Abraham, that he heard his prayer. And it demonstrates again God's grace, that God chooses to save Lot. So why should we pray for the unbelievers we know? Because we serve as intercessors while God saves a person. That God puts us into people's lives so that we could serve as intercessors for the lost. I mean, have you ever thought about the idea that maybe God has you cross paths with unbelievers so that you might pray for their salvation? I mean, people ultimately come to faith 
because of relationships with people. Someone shares the gospel with them. Someone answers their questions. Someone is there when they're going through a difficult time. Evangelism requires people. It necessitates relationship. And we pray for the lost because we recognize it is God alone who is able to save, even though we have the responsibility to share our faith. That only God can prompt a person to understand and believe in the gospel. And this should give us assurance and take the pressure off. Right? I mean, think about planting a plant. You put the seed in the dirt, you water it, you pull out nearby weeds, but God ultimately determines when it will sprout and will bear fruit. And it's the same when it comes to sharing our faith. So what do we do when a person refuses to believe in the gospel? We'll continue to pray for them. Because who knows? God might save them. And the timing, ultimately, again, is in God's hands. So in my life, there is a list of non-believers that I pray for almost on a daily basis. And on this list, there are family members and friends. And many of them still remain very far from the Lord. But I hope and pray that God would open their hearts to understand the gospel and to believe because I never know what God might do. So this morning we talked about a problem. No one is righteous, not even one. And this seems like an insurmountable challenge, but God provides a solution. He allows a righteous person to intercede for the unrighteous. And this should prompt us to pray. That we pray for unbelievers because you never know whom God will save. Now, after I became a Christian, I never expected my mom to come to faith. I mean, of all my family members, she was the most devout ancestor worshiper I knew. I mean, she had a portrait of my deceased grandparents in my living room. And underneath their photos, there was an altar with incense. And every year, my mom would prepare them a meal. Pork belly, fish, chicken. I mean, they ate better than I did. I mean, the meal would be offered three times a year. Chinese New Year's, grave cleaning festival, mid-autumn festival, and she refused to believe in the gospel or even visit a church. Okay, now I confess I didn't always pray consistently for her salvation, but I did pray, but it just seemed so impossible. Now, after a few years, my dad passed away. I received a phone call from my mom. Now, it was around Thanksgiving holiday, and I was living in Fort Worth at the time. Now, you know this. Asian moms only call when there's trouble. And so I'm thinking, oh, what happened? What happened at home? So I pick up the phone. I say, hey, mom, how are you? And we engage in the usual formal small talk. Have you eaten? Are you hungry? You know, are you have enough food? And then she shared with me that, well, she had been attending church and that she planned on getting baptized in two weeks. And I'm like, what? And then I asked her, so why didn't you tell me earlier? It's like, well, yeah, my pastor said if I didn't call you to tell you, then he would. And I'm like, oh, typical Asian mom. You know, and I fly out a few weeks later to witness her baptism. Now, I know this may not happen with the people that you're praying for, but my mom's conversion reminds me that pray for the lost you know, because you never know who God will ultimately save. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning, for the opportunity we have to be able to sit under the teaching of your word. We recognize that we live in a world where people do not live according to your design and according to your ways. But we pray that your spirit would help us to be intercessors, to pray for these individuals, to pray that they would come to faith in Jesus Christ and experience the joy of knowing you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.